Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, 
enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Father, as we turn our eyes to this short book, God, we see that there's so much here for so many of us. God, I pray that you would help us to see what's here in the weeks that are ahead, to see what you call us to be and what you call us to believe, to see what you've done for us in Christ and to love you for it and to serve you all of our days. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every now and again, I receive a phone call in the office with this sort of ambiguous question on the other end of the line, something like this. Can you tell me a little bit about your church? What kind of church are you exactly? That's usually the question. What kind of church are you? And of course, there are a number of different ways I can go with that. Um, But more often than not, what the inquiring mind wants to know, sometimes without actually coming out and saying it, is what kind of music do you have? And what kind of programs do you have for my kids and my teenagers or for young adults? And are there going to be a lot of people there that are my age? That's what people really want to know. And none of those things are wholly unimportant. In fact, just this week, I was tweaking the website in order to better and more attractively explain what we do offer for our children, for an example. But it's interesting for me to note that when we read the words of Jesus and the apostles, they have very little to say about those kinds of things, very little to say about style and affinity groups and programs and so on. That is to say, the Bible is not nearly as concerned with the church's outer wrapper as we sometimes are. Instead, and Paul's letter to Titus is a fantastic example of this, Jesus and the apostles have a ton to say about what the church should believe and how the church should behave. Not so much the outer trappings, but how do the people actually behave and what do the people actually believe? Gospel beliefs and good behavior. Those are the two traits to which the local church is supposed to aspire. And those are the traits that we ought to be asking about when we're looking for the right place to belong 
and to worship. So I think the next time someone calls me and says, what kind of church are you? I'm going to say, maybe, well, when you hang up the phone with me, just go and read the book of Titus. Because we're not there yet, but that's what we're really aiming for. We want to behave rightly and we want to believe rightly. God paints for us a wonderful picture of what we ought to want to be in this book of Titus, I think. A good gospel church. Now, when we read Titus, it's important to note that this letter from Paul to Titus is not an all-in-one manual on church life and practice. He doesn't answer every question that we would ever have about the church. In other words, he doesn't answer questions like, what are the elders supposed to do? He tells us what they're supposed to be, but he doesn't tell us what they're supposed to do. How do we receive church members? What are we supposed to do about the Lord's Supper and baptism? What about church discipline? What about deacons and so on? There is a lot that this letter does not answer. So this is not an exhaustive handbook on the church. If you wanted a handbook, an exhaustive handbook on the church, you'd have to compile a lot of what's said throughout the New Testament and bring it all together. Nevertheless, this book of Titus is a book largely about the church. Paul left Titus, his trusty assistant, on the island of Crete as a kind of apostolic ambassador to help these new churches on Crete organize themselves in a godly way. And though Paul doesn't deal with every question that needs to be asked about the church, in this short letter he does say quite a bit about faith and practice in the local church. And everything he says, it seems to me, falls under two main headings or into two main categories. First, Paul wants the churches on Crete and really all churches to be good churches. Good churches. Faithful, godly, in their behavior kind of churches. Filled with godly people who do the right things for the right reasons and set genuinely Christian examples for their neighbors and their families and their co-workers. He wants good churches. Good people. And then he wants, secondly, gospel churches. Gospel churches, namely churches that are faithful in their beliefs about the good news of Jesus. Very God of very God. And yet taking on flesh and walking among us. Being tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Laying down his life under the penalty that our sins deserve. Rising from the dead on the third day. Someday returning with great power and glory. So that whoever repents of their sins and trusts in him alone for salvation will have eternal life. He wants churches to believe that and to know that they believe that. So Paul wants good gospel churches. If you read the book of Titus, I think you'll see those are his two main concerns. They come to the forefront again and again and again in these three brief chapters. I'm sure you even noticed it as we read through the chapters a moment ago. Just to give you one example of Paul's two big things and seeing them come together beautifully, look at the very first verse of the letter. Chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to how Paul places Gospel belief and good behavior side by side in this very first sentence to Titus. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Did you hear it? Paul's concern, first of all, in verse 1 is for their faith, for their belief. 
that they would be a gospel church. He wants their faith and their knowledge of the truth to be right. That's his concern. Faith and truth. And yet, he wants to make sure that their faith and their truth is faith and truth that is according to godliness. He wants them to believe the right things and he knows that the right things will actually lead to the right behavior. Faith and truth according to godliness. A gospel church that has their faith and their truth right and a good church that has their behavior right. So Paul wasn't interested in doctrine simply by itself, though doctrine is the first thing in this verse and is always paramount in his mind. But he was interested in doctrine partly because good doctrine, verse 1, leads people to good behavior. Good doctrine is according to godliness. And that's the book of Titus in a nutshell, really. Paul wanted these churches to be gospel-centered in their beliefs and to be good and godly in their behavior. Good churches, gospel churches. And if I can venture what is somewhat of an educated opinion... I would say that those two traits, good behavior, gospel-centeredness, are the two most important traits that a church can have. There are other traits that churches should have, lots of other traits. But if they don't have those two, they're in trouble. In other words, churches may disagree, and some churches are wrong sometimes about things like the proper role of elders and deacons or the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, or the way the church is supposed to be governed. Churches disagree about that. Churches can be wrong about that and still be effective and godly churches if, if the gospel is clearly and accurately believed and applied and proclaimed and if the people live in such a way that is a credit to the gospel. If their faith is right in the gospel and their behavior follows then though they may get some things wrong, they can still be useful. But by contrast, a church may have all of its ducks in a row as far as church order is concerned and be a complete disaster and be totally worthless because the gospel is not understood clearly or the gospel is not central and the people's behavior is not what it should be. So surely Titus had other work, other organizing to do in the towns and villages and churches of Crete. But when the apostle found time to write his emissary Titus, his emphasis was on these two main things. Titus, Paul is saying in this letter, the two most important things are that you make sure that the churches get their beliefs straight and their behavior right. Make sure, Titus, that these are good gospel Churches. That's the introduction to Paul's epistle to Titus. But I don't just want to show you Paul's two twin concerns mainly from verse 1 or only from verse 1. I want to walk you briskly through the entirety of this letter and show you that Paul emphasizes these two things, good behavior and gospel belief, again and again and again in this letter. So first, notice his emphasis on good churches, on good churches. Paul's estimate of what constituted a good church had very little to do with whether they had a good speaker in the pulpit or a good children's program or good music. The goodness of the church in Paul's mind had to do with the goodness of the people. 
with the content of their character, with the example that they set. And you can't help but notice that when you skim through this little book. Paul wanted churches that were filled, first of all, with good leaders. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Good churches have good leaders. And by good leaders, I don't mean savvy leaders. I mean godly leaders, good men who are elders in the church. That's what he says there in those verses. And when you read over the qualifications that Paul laid down for the church's spiritual leaders, for the elders, you'll notice that he doesn't include anything about speaking ability or charisma or business savvy or administrative acumen or educational background. That is to say, not that those things are unimportant and not that God can't use them for his purposes, but it is to say that when Paul envisions Joe Elder, all those things, all those skill sets, all that magnanimity is neither here nor there in Paul's mind. What Paul cares about and what God cares about is character. It's more important, to put it simply, that the elders and the deacons too be good men than that they be great men. It's more important to God that his leaders be good men than that they be great men. And along those lines, Titus 1, 5 through 9 should give you some prayer points to pray for the men who are leaders in our church. Good churches have good leaders. Secondly, Paul says good churches have good lay people. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Again, we won't read through these again, but just as Paul was concerned that leaders be men of quality and goodness, he's also concerned that lay people, that all the men and women of the church, whether they be old or young, leader or follower, be good, godly people. Now just as an aside, I want you to notice that Paul does assume that the church will be made up of young people and old people. And that those groups of people will be intersecting helpfully and healthily in relationships with one another. Just notice that in passing. In other words, when Paul envisions the churches, he doesn't envision churches that target certain age demographics. He doesn't envision churches in which people are segregated based on their age, whether it be by way of official church policy. Now, we're going to have a traditional service for the old folks at 8 o'clock, and then after Sunday school we'll have a contemporary service for the young folks. Paul never envisions that. And he doesn't envision that it would be a self-imposed segregation either, that, that Christians would always gravitate towards people who are their own age. But I digress. Paul's main concern here is that all of God's people, men and women, young and old, slave and free, behave in a way that's befitting the gospel. That's what these ten verses are saying. And while we won't take time to read them all again, I think it's fairly obvious as we read them that many of the qualities that God requires of leaders are the same qualities that he requires of the lay people, of the gray-headed people and of the young whippersnappers and even of the slaves who are members of the church. Things like temperate, sensible, having a guard on your tongue, being agreeable, being loving, those are to be the feathers in the cap of every Christian. Not just the qualities of the leaders, but of all the people. It's striking how the qualities for the leaders are very similar to the qualities for the normal Christian. So, Paul wants good churches that have good leaders, good lay people. Thirdly, he wants them to have good citizens. Chapter 3, now, verses 1 and 2. Good citizens. Be subject to rulers, he says. Be obedient, be ready for every good deed, malign no one. Be peaceable. 
To put it simply, while verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 deal largely with Christian character at church and at home, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 speak directly to the Christian's character in the public sphere as he relates to the government, to his co-workers, and so on. And very simply put, Christians ought to be the best citizens in the country, no matter what country they live in. Remember, Paul is writing to people who are under the thumb of pagan Rome. And if they could find ways to be helpful, peaceable, gentle, obedient citizens, then surely you and I can as well. Good churches have good leaders, good lay people. All of them are good citizens. Fourthly, good churches have people engaged in good conversation, godly conversation. You see that in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11 where he warns against foolish controversies and factious men. It's amazing how much time some Christians spend warring, either on the internet or in person, about things like charismatic gifts or the proper understanding of the end times or what's lawful to do on the Sabbath and so on. And some of us from time to time may get caught up in that. But all the while that people are doing that, well-meaning people sometimes are arguing over all these things, Paul teaches us to avoid foolish controversies and to politely bow out of the conversation if someone is continually and consistently argumentative about secondary issues in verse 10. Is there a place for Christians to disagree and debate about things? Surely there is. Is there a place for controversy? Well, only as long as it's not foolish. In other words, if I stood here tonight and said that our Jewish friends or our Muslim friends might be saved by simply being good Jews or good Muslims, even though they reject the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, I hope there would be some controversy in this room. Surely there would be. And you would not be foolish for arguing with me or even removing me from this spot of teaching for saying something like that. There is a time for controversy and for defending the faith and fighting for the faith in a godly way. But that's not the kind of debate or controversy that Paul's speaking about in verses 9 and 10. Paul here is pleading with Titus to make sure that Christians in their conversation with one another don't degenerate into squabbles and divisions and acrimony about secondary issues. Things about which Christians who love the Lord and believe the Bible, disagree. The churches should be filled rather with healthy, profitable conversations about Jesus and about what He's done for us and about how we can love others and do good and spread the good news. Our conversations should be about those things which are of first importance and which lead to godliness. Whatever's good, Paul says in another place, and noble and right and pure, think about those things. And here he's saying, talk about those things. So good churches have good leaders, good lay people, good citizens, good conversation. And finally, he says good churches are filled with people doing good deeds. Good deeds. Here we see this in chapter 3, verse 8. And then in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 3 as well. Paul wrote the letter, he tells us in verse 8. He wrote the letter so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. And he wanted Titus to preach the gospel for that same reason. Preach the gospel, verses 5, 6, and 7. 
Speak confidently about these things, verse 8. Why? So that the people of God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Good deeds. It's important. And then in verses 13 and 14, Paul gives two paramount examples of exactly how we're to engage in good deeds. First, by taking care of the missionaries. That's what Apollos and Zenos were in verse 13. So take care of the missionaries. And then, verse 14, meet pressing needs. Those are two big good deeds that God wants us to do. Take care of the missionaries, meet pressing needs. In other words, to put it in contemporary terms, Paul envisions churches and people who give to Lottie Moon and send relief to the people in Haiti. Churches who pray for the Basses and the Epps and the Matheneas and the Melcodes and who donate to the food pantry. Churches who send mission teams to Asia and who feed the homeless at the City Gospel Mission. Help the missionaries meet the pressing needs. And there are lots of other good deeds as well. And the exhortation tonight would be make sure you pitch in somewhere, somehow, so that, verse 14, you do not prove to be unfruitful. So goodness. That's one of Paul's two main emphases. Goodness. Paul wants fruitful churches that have good leaders, good lay people, good citizens, good conversation, and good deeds. And I would just ask before we leave this point about goodness, if God has perhaps spoken to you through one or other of Paul's instructions for Titus and the churches in Crete. Leaders, are there areas in which after reading verses 5 through 9 in chapter 1, you need to repent? Or improve your character. Older people tonight, you can decide who you are. But if that's you, are you everything that God calls you to be in chapter 2? Verses 2, 3, and 4. Young men and young women, are you everything that God calls you to be in the next couple of verses? Everyone, do verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2 convict any of you about your attitude and your effort at work? And then in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, does that convict anyone about the way you obey and speak about and honor and pray for the government? Is it possible that God is urging someone here tonight to stop being so tied up in knots about secondary issues? Or that He's speaking to someone here tonight about the needs of the hurting and the needs of the missionaries? What is it for you? Whatever it is, the book of Titus reminds us that God cares about our goodness. He wants us to be a good church. But that's only half of this book. Because God, through his spokesperson Paul, wants good churches that are also, secondly, gospel churches. Good churches, now gospel churches. Goodness, of course, is essential for Christians. However, good behavior by itself is not necessarily Christianity, is it? Witness the kindness of many of your Mormon and Muslim and Hindu friends and your secular friends. Many of them are wonderfully kind people. And we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that there's none truly good. But I have no doubt that some of you know people, unbelievers, who would listen to the instructions that we've discussed so far and say, Amen. We should all do that, Christian or not. 
They would say amen to many of the moral and ethical things Paul calls upon us to be and do here in the book of Titus. And that means that simply to be a temperate and wise old man is not necessarily to be a Christian. Simply to give money to Samaritan's purse does not make one a Christian. For a young woman to say, I want to love my husband, I want to submit to him, I want to love my kids, I want to work at home, does not necessarily signify that that young woman is actually a Christian young woman. Because there's this whole matter of what we actually believe about Jesus, isn't there? So it's not enough to be a good church, we have to be a good gospel church. Paul wants good churches, but what he really wants are good gospel churches. And I want to show you that to that end, Paul stresses again and again, not only what we do, but what we believe. And you'll see it again in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul tells us that his whole purpose in writing, in addition that we would be careful to engage in good deeds, chapter 3, verse 8, his other whole purpose in writing is for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. Paul says, I'm writing to you for the faith of God's people, so that they will know the truth. I care about their faith. I care about their set of beliefs, in other words. Namely, he cares that their set of beliefs would be according to the truth. Then more specifically, he tells us in verse 9 of chapter 1 that he wants to make sure that the elders especially hold fast the faithful word and that they are able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict He wanted the elders to be able to silence and correct the false teachers in verses 10 through 16, the men who turn away from the truth. And then observe that it wasn't only the elders for whom doctrine was important, because in chapter 2, verses 1 and 10, where we had that long list of old men are to do this, and older women are to do that, and young women are to do this, and young men are to do that, and bond slaves are to do this. All these ethical instructions for various people in the church, we should note well in those ten verses that alongside those ethical instructions, Paul has a brief exhortation to sound doctrine for every single set of those people that he mentions. Men and women, young and old, slave and free. Watch it with me. Older men, chapter 2, verse 2, are to be sound in faith. Older women are to spend their time, verse 3, teaching what is good. Younger women are to live in such a way that the word of God will not be dishonored, verse 5. Verse 7, Titus and the younger men are to strive for purity in doctrine. And then in verse 10, bond slaves are to behave so as to adorn the doctrine of God in every respect. All five groups of people have their faith, their doctrine mentioned. No matter who you were in the churches of Crete, Paul cared about the soundness of your faith, the correctness of your doctrine, your treatment of the Word of God. Every single class of person is exhorted here to keep the church pure in its doctrine. Not just the elders. Everybody be pure in doctrine, sound in faith. And then beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul begins to expound exactly what doctrines are most important and exactly what doctrines are to be kept most pure. So if you will, he talked about the importance of doctrine and now he's going to talk about the important doctrines or the most important doctrines. What doctrines were central to Paul and what doctrines therefore should be central to us and to every 
Christian church in the world. Well, the basic core doctrines of what we call the gospel, right? The doctrines that have to do with the person and work of Jesus and how God has bent down to save mankind. Things like the grace of God, chapter 2, verse 11. The second coming of Jesus, verse 13. The fact that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, verse 14. The fact that we are saved, chapter 3, verse 5, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, also in verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 7, the promise of eternal life. These are the kinds of doctrines that Paul emphasized because these are the kinds of doctrines that make up the center of the Christian universe. These are the kind of doctrines, unlike the ones he talks about in chapter 3, verse 9, that we must fight for. And these are the kind of doctrines, according to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that Paul expects Earl and Ethan, Maybell and Mackenzie, and everybody in the age group in between to understand and to adorn. These basic gospel doctrines. Paul's not asking us to know all the ins and outs of the Levitical priesthood. He's not saying that every Christian should have a mastery of Greek or that we should all have the entire book of Revelation figured out. But he does expect every Christian to understand salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, not as a result of works, as he explains in chapter 3, verse 5. He does expect every Christian to know what it means that Christ gave himself for us. He does expect every Christian to know the gospel basics. So let me just ask you, do you know the gospel basics? To to make that a little more practical, let me ask it in a different way. If a Hindu from India who had never encountered the message of Jesus Christ in his or her life moved in next door to you tomorrow, Would you be able, in a simple way, to walk them through the Scriptures and give them a clear, basic presentation of the Gospel from creation to the cross to eternal life with all the key things in between? Would you know what to tell them? If they had no clue who God is, what sin is, who Jesus is, what faith means, what heaven is, would you be able to tell them? And would you know where to go in the Bible to be able to tell them? That's what Paul wanted for the churches in ancient Crete, and that's what he wants for each one of us. That we would be as familiar with the gospel message as we are with our children, with our living rooms, with the gear shifts in our cars, with the keypads on our phones. He wants us to know the gospel that well that we can do it in our sleep because we know it. And if you're not that familiar with the gospel, tonight could be a night of new beginnings. My goal is not for you to leave feeling shamed because you don't know what you should know, but for you to leave feeling challenged and feeling eager and feeling that knowing the gospel is the most important thing that you can do with your life right now. Being sound in faith and pure in doctrine, to put it in Paul's words, is the most important thing you can do with your life right now. And that it's just as attainable for you as it was for these people on Crete. And if you'd like to get started doing that, I would love to lend you a hand. So just ask and you shall receive. So Paul wanted good gospel churches. And tonight each one of us in some way or another probably has some work to do to ensure that this church 
is one of those kinds of churches. Some of you perhaps were touched tonight by the need to live in Christian goodness. Others of you by the need to better understand the gospel. But now I want to say that whichever the wind, whichever way the wind blew for you tonight, whether in the direction of goodness or in the direction of the gospel, I want to conclude by showing you that your need and opportunity are not simply confined to one or the other. For you tonight, it's not all about goodness or it's not all about the gospel, no matter which one seemed to hit you the heaviest. Because goodness and gospel, in Paul's mind, are so closely intertwined that a deficiency in goodness is of necessity a deficiency in the gospel. And we'll see that. Or a gospel lack will always coincide with a lack of goodness. The two things always go together. And so if you're struggling with one, you have some things to think about in regard to the other as well. Let me show you that. First, I want you to see, just looking back through the the passage again, Paul does not preach goodness for goodness sake. Paul does not preach goodness for goodness sake. Rather, he preaches goodness for the gospel's sake. This is really important to notice. Paul not just in the book of Titus, but throughout his letters, urges goodness upon us because goodness serves the proclamation of the gospel. For instance, chapter 2, verse 5. Do you remember why Paul was so concerned that young women fulfill their family responsibilities? It wasn't that Paul was a chauvinist or a patriarchalist. Nor was it that Paul saw family as the great hope for the world. You know, we've got to have these really good moms because families are the building block for society and they're raising the future presidents and congressmen and leaders of the world. And so we've got to have good moms. That's not it. Paul didn't conceive a family as the hope for the world. Paul himself didn't have a family. Paul conceived of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the hope for the world. And therefore... The reason, he says, why a young mother is so important in God's plan is not mainly because she's raising the next generation of leaders, as important as that could be. But a young mother is important in God's plans because the way in which she carries out her duties as a mother is a reflection upon the Word of God, verse 5, and thus upon the gospel that actually is the hope for the world. A young woman is to work at home, love her husband, love her children, because a failure to do so results in the word of God being dishonored. Chapter 2, verse 5. Do you see? We're not told to be good merely for goodness sake. We're told to be good so that our lives reflect positively on the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Our goodness is an advertisement for the gospel. Our goodness is an advertisement for what we believe. As for the housewife, so for the bond slave in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why does Paul say that? Is Paul just, you know, again, a patriarchalist that says, hey, I like this whole thing about slavery and so I'm just going to keep them down. No, why does he tell them to be good servants well because if they do so they will adorn the doctrine of god our savior 
in every respect. So for the housewife, for the bond slave, the thing is the same. You do what you do because it's an advertisement for the gospel. It adorns the doctrine of our Savior. And that's true for you. Whatever your station in life is, you should fulfill it with all diligence and eagerness and obedience for the sake of the gospel so that people will say, boy, those Christians really practice what they preach. Maybe I should start listening to what they preach. So Paul preaches goodness for the sake of the gospel. And he also preaches the gospel for the sake of goodness. Goodness for the sake of the gospel, the gospel for the sake of goodness. In other words, now Paul makes it clear again and again that he's not harping on correct doctrine just so that he can fill the churches with intelligent, articulate, well-informed people who know what they believe and are able to share it with others. That's important. We should want to be intelligent, articulate, well-informed people who know what we believe and are able to share it with others. But that's not Paul's only goal. He has an added motivation for preaching the gospel, and he tells us what it is again and again. Namely, that the gospel actually promotes the very goodness that in turn promotes the gospel. The gospel is preached by Paul because it promotes goodness. Now, do you remember chapter 1, verse 1? Go there one more time. This truth that Paul is preaching, this faith that he is proclaiming is truth and faith according to godliness. The gospel produces godliness, goodness. Even more clearly in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul tells us that the saving grace of God has appeared. Not just to rescue us from hell, wonderful that, as that is, but the saving grace of God has also appeared, instructing us, verse 12, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God has appeared, that's gospel, instructing us in goodness. The gospel leads to goodness. And then there's chapter 2, verse 14 where we read that Jesus gave himself for us, yes, to grant us forgiveness, yes, to grant us eternal life, but also he gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus gave himself so that we would be zealous for good deeds. Jesus, in other words, died to make us better people. That's one reason why correct doctrine is so important because it is Jesus' death and a proper understanding of his death that actually changes lives. Therefore, when you hear someone saying something like, you know, Christians often waste far too much time talking about doctrine when they should be thinking about love and abundant life and making the world a better place. I think you have permission from Paul to say to them kindly, You haven't read the book of Titus lately, have you? Because Paul in no way says that Christians need to set aside doctrine so they can think about love and abundant life and making the world a better place. In fact, he says the exact opposite. The quickest way to cut off the flow of love and life and world-changing Christian effort is to be hazy and lazy and nondescript about the gospel. And conversely, the best way to help people love one another and serve the undesirables and change the world is to teach them 
clearly and repetitively and repetitively and repetitively about the one who gave himself for them, the one who loved them when they were unlovable and undesirable and worldly. That's what sends people into the streets and to the end of the earth with God's love, the gospel. It's the clear, accurate articulation of the person and work of Jesus and the message of the gospel, correct doctrine, as Paul has been calling it, that changes lives and motivates love and action and selflessness. So Paul preaches goodness for the gospel's sake. And he preaches the gospel for goodness' sake. For the gospel's sake. And what that means tonight is that if God has tapped you on the shoulders and spoken to you about your need of goodness, then He's also speaking to you about your testimony of the Gospel. And if He has tapped you on your other shoulder and challenged you to better understand the Gospel, then at the same time He is showing you that success in doing so will not only make you a better witness, but also a better person. So leave tonight determined to know the gospel and to live in such a way, chapter 2, verse 10, so as to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Do your part to make sure that we are a good gospel church.